You know, it's not just one Sunday a year that we think about the resurrection of Jesus. Every time we break bread, as we did this morning, we remember the one who was revealed in the breaking of bread. Every time we get up on a new day, we say, this is the day the Lord has made. This means his mercies are new. Great is his faithfulness. And every time we think about what holds in store for us the future, we remember the resurrected Lord who holds our future. So just before I come to the Word of God, let us have just one more. We can do this easily wherever we are. Just one more hand clap of praise and applause to the wonderful name of Jesus this Resurrection Sunday. Amen. And amen. There are so many scriptures that we can turn to, gospel narratives that give to us eyewitness testimony and accounts of people meeting the resurrected Jesus on that first Sunday morning. We're going to refer to a few of them, but I'm going to begin with John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. This is Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus, one of the very earliest encounters, very early on that Sunday morning, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Resurrection encounters. Romans chapter 4 verse 1 says that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness 
through his resurrection. And that word declared is a word that is linked to our word horizon. So it seems to me that appearing on the horizon on resurrection morning is the dawn of a new day. Jesus Christ resurrected the glorious embodied solution to humanity's deepest needs and problems. And standing high on the horizon of your life today is the victorious resurrected Son of God offering you resurrection life in all its fullness. Today we're going to meet four people whose lives were turned around when they met the resurrected Lord. And in doing this, we're going to discover how you can turn from your distress to experience joy, where your brokenness can be transformed into fruitfulness and your disappointment into expectation. Four people. First of all, Mary, as we have just read. She is distressed, deeply distressed. A woman who loved Jesus so dearly as one of his closest disciples came to the tomb early on that Sunday morning wanting to attend to the body and perform one final act of devotion. But when she arrives, she discovers the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. Now even that last act of devotion was being denied her and she is even more distressed. They've taken him away from the tomb and I don't know where they have put him. She's broken, weeping, uncontrollably, deeply distressed. Then if we turn over the page to John chapter 21, we meet another disciple, Peter, devastated. Why was he so devastated? One moment ready he was to defend Jesus from arrest, even raising his sword to strike the servant of the high priest to defend Jesus from his arrest in the garden. But it seems the very next moment, we find him vehemently denying with oaths and curses that he ever knew Jesus. I don't know him. I never knew him. Now he's devastated. Broken apart by his own failure, deeply disgraced, disqualified, it would seem, from his apostolic ministry and from his leadership ministry in the early church. And for all he knew, disqualified even from being a follower of Jesus. Then if we turn to Luke chapter 24, we meet two further disciples. These people were deeply, deeply disappointed, disillusioned. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So these two dispirited, disillusioned deeply disappointed disciples 
make their way, way slowly with a heavy heart on foot, taking that two-mile journey from Jerusalem to their little village, Emmaus. And as they were walking, they were talking. And the conversation centered around the end of their dreams, their hopes for their own lives, for their families, and indeed for the whole of Israel, were dashed to the ground. The one whom they thought was Messiah was now dead. It was all over, broken, disillusioned, deeply disappointed. I want to ask you this morning, what do you do when your devotion is denied? When someone you love is cruelly taken from you? When the centerpiece of your life is destroyed and your heart is torn out from you? How do you handle deep, inconsolable grief? Or what do you do when you have become so discredited, such an open failure, that you're now convinced that God could never use you again, that you will never see your gifts, your talents, your calling become fruitful or fulfilled when your life so once full of promise now seems to be over with no hope of redemption, forgiveness, or restoration? Or still further, what do you do when you see your one hope of a better future? Something that will bring deliverance and freedom to you, your family, even to your nation. All that now evaporating into thin air. How foolish to allow yourself to believe, to hope. Never again. Now back to drudgery. No escape. No future. It's all over. Now the one thing and the only thing that can make a difference in all these situations and much more is the discovery that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. As he said, I am he who lives, who died and was raised again and is alive forevermore. So why seek the living among the dead? Why soak the grave clothes with your tears? Dry your eyes so you can see the resurrected Lord is here. He's not dead, but he is alive. Now, it was exactly that that transformed all these disciples. 
that took away their distress, that removed their shame and revived their hope, the certainty of the resurrection. Some time ago, a friend of mine, when I was sharing with him the evidence for the resurrection, he seized upon his explanation. Ha! The disciples definitely stole the body. And they did this to pretend that he was raised again from the dead. And they then spread this scam all over the world for their own personal and religious purposes. Well, that's not really an explanation. It's in fact an accusation that doesn't stand up to the evidence. Now, there are many reasons why we believe that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. A lot of evidence we can bring together. And, and that statement about the disciples stealing the body is historically inaccurate. The Jewish leaders were searching for the body. The Roman government had intense, aggressive self-interest in ensuring that they found the body to disprove these rumors that Jesus was alive but they couldn't find the body. So they spread around the story that the disciples stole the body. They could produce no witness to that event, which must have been noticeable because the stone, very heavy, covered the entrance to the tomb. It was on 24-7 watch guards. Security was there. Nobody could have snuck in at any time of day or night, rolled the stone away, stole the body, without those Roman soldiers who on pain of death were defending and acting as security officers for the tomb. Not only is this historically inaccurate, it's also mythologically inaccurate. I use the word myth because that's what a lot of people say. This is just a myth. These myths, these were stories, legends, I want to say to you, the resurrection cannot be dismissed as a myth. Why? For one main reason. Myths and legends take time. They take decades and sometimes even hundreds of years to develop. And you can be sure that no myth or legend can develop in the lifetime of the witnesses who were there at the time and who knew what actually happened. No, the resurrection did not develop as a belief hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. The resurrection was experienced and proclaimed as a witness fact by people who were there at the time. They saw him, they ate with him, they touched him. And immediately they proclaimed the resurrection not just as a fact, but as the cornerstone of the gospel message. They believed Jesus was raised because they met him. But for our stories today, what's even more important than these things is the understanding that this idea that the resurrection was some kind of invented story is totally psychologically inaccurate. Their distress was turned to joy. Why? Because they met the resurrected Lord. It could not have happened the other way around. In other words, they did not invent the resurrection story in order to make themselves feel better. Now we know grief does play tricks on your mind. 
initially in the very early stages of grief, there's denial. You cannot accept that your loved one has passed. You expect to see them walk in the door as usual. You try to tell yourself it hasn't really happened. And in some cases of extreme grief, people can go for a while actually believing that it hasn't happened. But gradually and painfully, you begin to accept the reality. Your loved one has gone. But in the case of Jesus, it was not wishful thinking to say that Jesus was alive. They saw him, eyewitnesses, and not just a few individual distressed people in solitude. But he was seen repeatedly by groups of people together on one occasion up to 500 people at one time. And as the evidence of his resurrection appearances grew, so the certainty of the fact that Jesus was no longer dead but had been raised from the dead, that certainty grew and grew. No, it was the resurrection fact. The fact that they encountered him, encountered him, that's what, that's what made the difference. That's what turned Mary's distress into joy that restored Peter from disgrace and that revived the hopes of Israel and those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now the same resurrected Jesus can turn your distress into joy your brokenness into fruitfulness, your disappointments into exhilarating expectation. So let's see how this worked out, first of all, in Mary's case. So Mary Magdalene was one of the most devoted disciples of Jesus. She'd encountered Jesus in his earthly life. She'd heard his teaching, he had ministered to her, transformed her life, her sins had been forgiven, and she loved the Lord dearly. She was one of the first, very, very early, on that first resurrection morning, to come to the tomb. What was she doing there? She wanted to show her devotion to attend to the body why are you weeping? They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And then she turned around, and Jesus called her by name, Mary. And she knew at once who it was. You know, the people close to you, the people who know you, the people who care for you, the people who love you, nobody says your name the way they say it. And Jesus immediately, immediately caused Mary to recognize who it was. Imagine Mary instantaneously 
when a brain can hardly take it in, but there's the evidence in, in front of her, and she's so overjoyed, her distress is turned to exhilaration and joy, and doubtless she rushed to him to grab him and hold him, and he said, no, 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 you can't hold on to me. I'm on my way to the Father. I've not yet ascended. I've just come to let you know that I'm not dead and I am alive and everything's okay and not just is everything okay, everything is accomplished, all has changed. I'm on my way to the Father and my God is to become your God. My Father is to become your Father. Tell the disciples, it is finished. The broken relationship with God is restored. I have died for your sins. I've been raised again from the dead and this is good news. Peter, poor old Peter, devastated Peter. I'm sure you recall the story. Jesus prophesied and said, everybody's going to scatter, you're going to abandon me. And Peter says, not I. Oh, no, 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 they will, but I won't. And bless him, he did try. He used force to try and prevent Jesus' arrest. And Jesus said, that's not the way. He followed close by as Jesus was carried in from one court, one tribunal to the other tribunal. And there he was trying to, to, to stay it out and stick it out. And then suddenly it all collapses. His courage leaves him. And a servant girl says, you are one of them. We know, we've seen you with Jesus. No, 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 your accent is Galilean. No, I don't know him. I don't know him. You remember Jesus' prophecy saying, Peter, you think you're better than the others. Let me tell you, before this night is out, you will have denied me three times. And that must have cut like a thousand knives, piercing his heart. So he's broken and devastated. And then his mind runs riot. I'm an apostle. I've disqualified myself. I've discredited myself. Jesus has promised me a leadership role. I've lost it. Maybe I've even lost my right to be a disciple because didn't Jesus say, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven? But Jesus had another plan. In the Gospels, one of the times when Jesus revealed himself, he said, hey, tell my disciples I'm going ahead to Galilee. Tell my disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. Make sure Peter is there because I haven't finished with him yet. And in John 21, we have the story. The disciples go fishing. There's a miraculous catch because Jesus from the shore tells them where to throw their nets and then Peter recognizes it's Jesus and there he is, all stripped to the waist, doing his fishing out there at sea. And so he puts on his outer coat, gets dressed, and jumps into the water. It's Jesus! And when they get to the shore, Jesus is cooking them fish. You know what? I don't like fish normally, but if Jesus cooked it, I'd eat it. And during this conversation... Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Tend my sheep. 
Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my lambs. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And at the end of the conversation, having outlined what was to come into Peter's life, meaning that he was going to die a martyr's death, he said to Peter, you know this, yeah, follow me. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is forgiving Peter. It's one thing to come to Jesus with your sins of all the stuff you did before you were a believer, but it's another thing as a believer to fall and to fail in such a definitive fashion as actually to deny the Lord to his face. Now, maybe you're not surprised that Jesus would forgive. And that was the essential thing, but there was another problem. Jesus would forgive Peter, but would his fellow workers forgive him? Would his fellow disciples forgive him? I can tell you of situation after situation when people in leadership positions have failed to the point where even though Jesus has forgiven them, your colleagues will not. Your fellow disciples will not. So Jesus contrived to restore Peter and reinstate Peter publicly three times, one affirmation to counteract each denial. So now, and then also to recommission him. So everybody knew that Jesus had forgiven Peter, restored him to his apostolic position, and recommissioned him to be a leading disciple in the very early church. But I also think there's a deeper reason. Why, well, another reason, at least, why Jesus did this in such a public way. For after all, in one way or another, it was not just Peter who had denied Jesus. They'd all denied him because they abandoned him. They were no different from Peter. So before we point the finger to one another, remember that. They were no different from Peter. But the real lesson I think that Peter had to learn was that he was no different from them. In other words, Peter was a whole lot more humble from this time forward. Then the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24 tells you the whole story. It's after the crucifixion. Everybody's talking about the death of this rabbi. He's gone, disciples scattered, brokenhearted. And on the way, they're discussing this. And Jesus draws close in the lengthening shadows of the evening. They don't know who he is. What are you talking about? Don't you know? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hadn't heard these things? A prophet, mighty in word and deed, has arisen in these days, and we had hoped that he would be the one, the Messiah, to redeem us all. 
and Jesus gave them a Bible study. Beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, he showed them how those scriptures pointed to himself and said, was it not necessary that Messiah should first suffer before he entered his glory? They arrived at the threshold of their humble home in Emmaus. They invited Jesus in for a meal. And in the moment, in the typical way that a Jewish meal begins is by breaking bread. And as Jesus broke bread, he was made known to them. And afterwards they said, we knew it. Didn't our hearts burn with passion when he opened us the scriptures? Now today, on Resurrection Sunday, I want you to imagine that you are one of these four disciples. And the resurrection Lord is appearing on the horizon of your life. What would he say to you? Words of comfort in your distress? Restoration from your sin and failures? Encouragement to replace your disappointment? One thing's for sure, these would not be empty words, but words of authority and victory, triumphant facts, not tea and sympathy, the facts that change everything, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection through the Spirit of holiness, the cornerstone of the gospel, not just emotional comfort, but death is defeated, sins are forgiven, heaven's door is flung open wide to all, eternal life, restoration, and hope, because Jesus did come. He did die, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world, and now, has been resurrected, lifted up high upon the horizon, not just of your life, but on the horizon of the whole of humanity. And today, if you will open your heart, God will make sure that your eyes, at least your spiritual eyes, will recognize He is not dead, but he is alive. Amen. Give Jesus a praise. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord. Now, before we move on, I'm going to pray at this particular point, but let me explain something. We'll introduce you to the welcome room in a, in a moment where you can join, you go to kt.org, you can link there, and you can talk to people. And if the word has touched you in some way or you just want to say hi and greet people, or if you want a private conversation, there are breakout rooms for you to do that in. You can do that or you can go straight to katie.org and have a look at the drop-down menu, The Way to God. Because this is a challenge in your life. If Jesus Christ 
really has been raised from the dead, then you need to meet him. You need to get to know this. There are many questions you might have. A whole lot more questions we could ask and answer even this morning. But the most important thing is whatever need you have, however it manifests in the human emotional realm, relational realm, social realm, and most importantly, however it manifests in your life spiritually, you know that you need God's forgiveness in your life. And Jesus is ready to give it and to call you out of your darkness, despair, and the shadows of your life and cause you to walk in the light of his life and of his resurrection. Thank you.